Early on, when I just started the company, I was very, uh, I was very focused on like building the cool technical thing, and I had a lot of experience and I knew what worked, but I didn't really know how to build a product to go to market, and I didn't even know what go to market really meant, to be honest. As an engineer, it was just so far removed from my world. You know, I was coming out of doing detection and response for eight years. I didn't know anything about building companies. So I would say putting more of an emphasis on solid product management early on would have made a huge difference. My name is Jack Naglieri, and I'm the founder and CEO of Panther Labs. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Lampart, and today how Jack Naglieri created a threat detection platform to alleviate the pain of traditional incident response. All this and more on Code Story. Jack Naglieri grew up in Ohio, but moved to Virginia when he was 10. He had a normal East Coast family upbringing, but he focused on tech early on, even as a kid. Eventually, he went to George Mason to study computer science, and alongside that, he was heavily involved in the music scene there, producing music and DJing in clubs. Outside of tech, he's into cooking and fitness, and he focuses a lot on making sure that his body and brain are in good shape through exercise, meditation, sleep, and healthy eating. Jack was working as an incident responder previously, and during that time, he figured out that AI-based models for breach detection don't work as well as intuitive humans, as oftentimes there isn't enough signal for them. Along with using antiquated sets of data, he decided that there must be a way to leverage the cloud and build a solution to solve the pain points within this process. This is the creation story of Panther Labs. Panther is a security platform that is built to detect cyber breaches at any scale. And the origins come from my time as a practitioner. So I started my career 10-ish years ago when I first moved to California, actually just before I moved to California. I was working as an incident responder and the job of an incident responder is to look at data that's been collected and then try to identify if an attacker got in and did something nefarious. And there's a, there's a lot of ways to go about the job. and in a lot of ways, it can be a very gray area because oftentimes good attackers just look like normal humans doing their normal job. You have to have really strong intuition to understand what's good and what's bad. It's a big reason, in my opinion, why like the AI-based solutions don't really work uh, because oftentimes you don't have a lot of signal and that's really what they need. A lot of it comes down to the intuition of humans and that's really what I have learned through the you know, eight, eight to nine years of doing it as a practitioner. Throughout that time, I was using a lot of the tools that we had to our disposal, and um, they're called SIMs. A lot of security practitioners always really struggled to use them because they, they weren't scaling, they were super slow, they're very expensive, they're very cumbersome to run at scale, and they're just legacy architectures. The designs of, of those architectures didn't innovate fast enough to keep up with the growth of data. And really, at the end of the day, uh, security becomes a data problem where you just need the visibility into everything that's going on. And to get that, you need a very sophisticated set of infrastructures to really handle that, like from data collection to analysis to investigation. Like, it really comes down to like 
how structured and scalable is your data? And then from that goes into your ability to get that visibility. That was my career. My whole career was spent on deploying security tools, sending huge amounts of data to a single place for incident response teams to do detection and response, forensics, like whatever else. So Panther really was born to solve those problems. It really came from my experience and the experience of others early in my team at these large Silicon Valley companies. So my time at, at Yahoo and Airbnb combined with other people's times at companies like Google and Amazon and, and really just sort of combining all of these experiences together and really taking like the secret sauce that worked for us, which was really using and harnessing the power of the cloud to do this job for us in a way that uh, allowed us to scale up with a very small team that also allowed us to apply like principles of software engineering into security. And we found that that worked. We were able to really accomplish new things that just were never possible for in, in, in the traditional sims. After doing this internally for many years at Airbnb, actually, we built an open source project that was called StreamAlert. And StreamAlert was this serverless data analysis framework is, is how we explained it. You would feed it data, it would automatically scale because it was backed by AWS Lambda and Lambda elastically scales based on the, on the workload coming in. And then as security practitioners, we it was, it was great because we could have automated analysis, we could use things like detections as code and written in Python, which was really great because security practitioners love Python. We could really get over the, the scale, cost, speed, and all the other challenges that we had hit in the past. Of course, the downside is that you're, you're building software. And as a security team, you don't often have that much leisure time to create the platform that you're supposed to be using every day. That's a big reason why I left to start the company. So after seeing this work at Airbnb and seeing, you know, the open source adoption, I was like, there's something really interesting here. And I remember just sitting at my desk one day and, you know, I was looking at a, a, a data warehouse because we had fed all this structured data in. And it was just such a different world than I was so used to with, with the traditional sims that were typically unstructured data. It was very hard to get to a point where you could have like very, very high scale. I just remember doing like a select statement in a data warehouse and I was like, this would be so amazing to have at a very high scale for security data. That combined with the open source project kind of became the inspiration for why I wanted to build Panther. And, you know, I think for me, I, I wanted to just take these, these learnings overall and just make them broadly applicable to really any teams. That's what we've seen so far with Panther and it's been a really fun journey. So, Well, tell me about the MVP or what you would consider like the first version of the product. How long did it take you to build it, and what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life? So the MVP was really the open source project, if you think about it. That was really the MVP. And, and then, you know, there was actually maybe one to two subsequent versions from that. So when I left to start Panther, I wasn't really starting from zero. I was kind of starting from like the third iteration because... After the first couple years of development with StreamAlert, I was like, well, there's a couple fundamental things I think we need to do differently. And when we were building Panther, me as the engineer, I was like, well, I want to do these, you know, five things. And, you know, I want it to be a microservice architecture and I want it to be, you know, Go and all these different things. And then, you know, you do that and you're like, oh, man, this is like kind of overkill. So I think I overcorrected a little bit for the Panther MVP. And then what we ended up doing was pulling it all back into a single repo, uh, making it really easy to deploy, and then we actually open sourced it for about a year. That was really the, the true MVP, I would say. So in, in January 2020, 
we open sourced a free version of Panther that allowed teams to do real-time analysis on their data with Python and then do some, some cloud scanning and cloud security posture management as well over their AWS data. That really served as our initial version. And that was actually before we even had any enterprise features available. We were really just like releasing things as soon as we got it. And as soon as we had our first two enterprise features, we pushed really hard to get customers. And really our whole business model was we would allow people to upgrade into a, an enterprise version that had the SSO features, you know, the, the basic enterprise ready stuff, but it also had the ability to store your data in a data warehouse. And that would all be queryable within Panther. And then, you know, eventually it fed into a lot of other features we built, like being able to pull in your SaaS logs, being able to have our back or whatever else like there's, there's a handful of other things too and you know we eventually actually closed source in 2021 around in april i think the mvp is is really that that open source was our you know our v v0 right and then our v1 release i think was in march so then you know from there onward we had first started together our first set of customers and then it was a whole different ballgame from there so with the first version of the product, you, know, you kind of alluded to a few things at a high level, but let's dive into it. You've got to make certain decisions and trade-offs, right? About you know, feature cut and technical debt and your approach and, and open source and all the, all the things. Tell me about some of those that you had to make and how you coped with those decisions. Open source was the interesting one, I think. I've done a lot of work in open source. Like I was a big supporter of OS Query. When I was at a prior company, I had written like a cookbook to help deploy OS query and that I, I learned later was used by a lot of people, um, which was really cool. And then um, Streamalert obviously was open source. So when we were building Panther, we were like, we just really want to get this in the hands of security engineers and open source is a great way to do that. So uh, I think down the line, what we ended up seeing was, you know, we did our first year of sales and getting some, some true enterprise customers. And then I looked back and I was like, well, none of them or maybe one of them came from open source. And I think open source was really great for awareness and for people to kick the tires, but it really wasn't like a strong way for us to, to go and enter the market. So I decided to close source. The reason I did that was because the, the amount of overhead required to manage open sources can, can be quite difficult, especially for a product like ours, which is like very heavily centered on like high scale data processing and Lambda serverless architectures and just super nuanced things that a lot of people can't easily contribute to. Security is not a very engineering-heavy culture. I'd say actually it's probably a growing uh, skill set is to become a security engineer. And it's kind of required in the modern day because of how much data there is. But we really just ended up finding that it wasn't super effective for us to really enter the market and have the most impact. So we decided to close source. And what that ended up doing was it reduced this like split brain problem that we had, where we had development for open source and we had development for our enterprise customers. And you know, in a big monorepo, it just becomes a huge engineering overhead. And then the other thing is just, as you start to grow, these decisions have bigger, like a broader set of impact. That's one thing that people don't typically tell you. And um, it's something you have to be really cognizant of when, you know, things start to work. You're like, oh, wow, like this one decision I made, you know, two years ago is still affecting us today because it's just very difficult to change it. So then from that point, you go closed source, right? And you said, you know, acquiring new types of customers and, and things of that nature. The question is, how did you progress the product from there? And, and how did you change your approach and mature it? And I'm, I'm curious how you built your roadmap and decided 
at how you went about deciding, okay, this is the next most important thing to build? There's a couple ways to think about it. The basic one is you can 100% listen to your customers all the time. And then another one is you can kind of anticipate their needs based on their feedback. And I think it's kind of a combination of, of both of them, right? Like there's some tactical things that people just need and want. We stack rank it. We look at the most commonly requested feature, how they would like to use it. We try to understand and get in there, get inside their, their journey and really learn about what they're doing end to end. And then we just prioritize from there. If I put my PM hat on, it's like, you know, well, we do rice scoring and <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And, you know, but I think at the end of the day, it's just listening to what the market is telling us from, from a sales perspective, from our current customers, and then taking our own expertise and, and looking into the market and trying to f- take a zoomed out approach to how to solve a problem. Because oftentimes a customer will tell you a very tactical thing that they need. Whereas like you as the PM or you as the product leaders, your job is to zoom out and be like, well, what they're all asking for is a system like this. So why don't we build something that allows them to do a multitude of things related to this piece of feedback? In a lot of ways, like that's the innovator's dilemma, right? It's like the idea of if you listen too literally to your customers, um, you may actually go in the wrong direction or you may build something that actually isn't broadly applicable. So that's kind of the challenge. And when you work with certain segments of customers, their needs become very specific to their environment. So that's something else you have to be careful about, especially in security. There's a lot of teams out there who are like, well, I want access to the internals. I want access to, you know, build all these other things on top. And we just have to be like, sorry, we're just not going to do it. Like, you know, it doesn't really make sense for us to invest our time and Time is super important in a startup, so you have to be really good at prioritization. That's a little bit of the thought process. It's kind of a combination of, of prospect feedback, customer feedback, and then us just kind of looking within and, and building based on our own intuition. Because we have a lot of great security minds at the company, too, who've gone through the journey. And honestly, a lot of these things are pretty known. You know, we know what the problems are with Sims, and there's so many things we could build. I mean, there's like an endless amount of things just because this is such a hard problem. And there's so many ways to solve it. So speaking of those individuals, how did you go about building your team? And and what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? Yeah, building a team is probably the hardest part. And I think it's probably also the most important part of building a company. You know, the, the traditional three things that you need to survive as a startup are a good product, a good team, a good market. And I think because of that, so many startups fail because getting all of those three right at the right time and sustaining that through growth is so difficult. So, you know, the thing I always say, and, and one of our core values is take care of the team. You have to start with the team. Like everything starts with the team. You can't, you can't go take the market and you can't go build a product without a good team. So when it's early days and, you know, you're a sole founder, the first group of people really matter. And in, in those first years also, you have a very limited set of capital depending on what, what, of course, you're doing and who your you know, supporters are. But, you know, if you go raise one or two million, that's really a team of four to five people, depending on, you know, if you want to eat ramen or not every day. <laughs> Early days, you know, you have to make those decisions really wisely. Going through the network is always the easiest way. So some of my early people really were through that network. And it was people that I had worked with previously, um, that my co-founder had worked with previously. And it's kind of an interesting story, the origins of the company. Um, I, say, I say my co-founder, uh, the guy who actually helped me start the company was an investor. He has this model where he'll like sort of incubate companies and work very closely with, with the founders. And then, you know, once they start to take off, he'll take more of like a, a board member advisory approach. And 
it works, it works really well, but uh, his network was really helpful too. So my first two employees were one from my network, one from his network, and then we just started building. You know, referrals are the best way to hire people because it's 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 transit of trust, right? It's like, oh, I trust you, you work with me, so therefore, you know, I trust someone else that you trust. It's just a combination of your network, your network's network, and then a little bit of faith thrown in and, and, and inbound. So when you screen for people, I mean, honestly, in the early days, it was like, are you crazy enough to do this with me? Cool, let's go. Uh, do you have a relevant background? Like, are you good at what you do? You know, we put a, put together really basic coding interviews, but we didn't have anything like, you know, like we have today, which we have, you know, full loops. We have like culture interviews. We have like leadership interviews, which looks at people management skills. You know, we have a lot of different things to assess a lot of uh, different skill sets and we all kind of come together at the end and we give our thoughts and it's much more structured, but early days, it was just like, we just need people and we need people who have relevant experience. And I think that's the most important piece when you're just getting started. Let's flip to scalability then. So did you build this to scale efficiently from day one or have you been fighting this as you've grown? So on the product side, yeah, absolutely. It was built for scale. It was always built for scale. That was one of the key things we always wanted to solve for. And the way we approached it was just by going cloud native. Services and technology that is fully reliant on, on cloud services to, to manage and scale and doesn't really have anything to do with running conventional software as you would like deploy it to a virtual machine. It's really just about harnessing the power of, of the cloud to our advantage. So from day one, that was like really a huge focus of ours. And luckily enough, because of these early hires that I had made, we all had that similar experience. So the architecture of Panther really materialized very early for scale. And I remember we did a load test in like 2020 and it was like my, one of my engineers fed like 50 terabytes of data per day through Panther. And I was like, this is absolutely nuts. Like, I don't know how you did this. The early roots there definitely paid dividends down the line. So, you know, nothing's perfect. Obviously, there's always been there's always been like some challenges. And the beauty actually with being a security vendor is that we have access to all these different customer environments effectively and you know like they're able to to battle test panther as we as we grow and reach the limits of anything that we build and it's really interesting to see the things that just elastically scale and never break and then the things that like occasionally do hit their limit um, but oftentimes on the in the core processing pipeline we've really yet to see someone like really take it past its limit which is pretty insane and then on the company side man it is just so challenging to build a team. If I rewind my head like the, the you know, year over year, so I think uh, 2018 is when I started. We had three people, including myself. 2019, we had six people, and that was when I raised my seed round. 2020, we went from six to 26, and then that was uh, $15 million Series A. 2021 was uh, 26 to 106, and then we raised our 120 million. Last year was really, a crazy year for hiring and you know i think as a as in as a founder the most important thing that you can do is really establish a great executive team and give up a lot of stuff you know i, I keep finding year over year that i'm less responsible for for things and i think that's really how it should be as a ceo the only thing i should really be focused on is the the direction of the company communicating that to the to internal team and and our board and to the, the world. And that's really what we're doing right now, right? And um, making sure my team is happy, they're enabled, the product is pushing in the right direction. We're doing right by our customers. We're keeping their data safe while also enabling them to do detection at scale, like all these different things. So 
really I'm, my job is meant to be zoomed out. And I think founders have to take that approach. Well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you have built, what are you most proud of? I'm, I'm proud of everything, really. I'm proud of the team. I'm proud of the culture that we've created. I'm, I'm proud that, you know, when people join the company, they'll ping me and they'll say, like, hey, Jack, like, I, I really love the culture here. People are, you know, really welcoming, really helpful, really honest, open, transparent, like those things. I think that's something I'm super proud of. I'm proud of the recognition that we get in the market. I'm proud of the customers that have put their faith in us in a, in a small startup to do such a critical thing for them. It's a critical service of helping them detect breaches. Like that's a very difficult job. And people that trust us enough to, to put, put that in our hands is, is something I'm super proud of. Um, I'm proud that we've survived till this far and, you know, not, not only survived, but we've grown really quickly and I'm really proud of my team. I think that, you know, they're the reason for our success and they're the ones who really help me do my job every day. And um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot to be proud of, I think, just kind of zooming out and, you know, the product that we've built, the people that are currently surrounding us. And, you know, I think that the company is a collection of people. And when those people come together to do something together, it just like is really amazing. So. It's been definitely like the most incredible journey I've had as a as a person, you know, not just like as a as a technologist or as a security practitioner, just as like a human. It's been a really remarkable journey and it's been the hardest thing I've ever done. So the fact that you know it's still going is, uh, is something I'm absolutely proud of. Well, let's flip the script a little bit. So tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. Oh, I've never made any mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we talked about some of them, right? We talked about hires that didn't go well. The way you fix that is, you know, you have to let people go sometimes. And that's a natural part of life. That's a natural part of business. You know, you, you let the person go. You do it in a way that's, you know, retains their integrity. And, you know, you do it very respectfully. You take care of them. You give them, you know, as Netflix says, you know, give them a very gener generous severance. After that, you do your best to always speak of them positively and on the contributions they brought to the company, et cetera, et cetera. So it's like... There's a whole way to do it right, and there's also a way to do it wrong. So, you know, that, that's a very canonical one that most founders and, and teams can, can relate to. We also talked about open source, closed source, and I think, you know, that was a decision also that we went back on. And that also had a lot of benefits once we closed source. So that's another thing I could call out. It's things I already mentioned. I mean, there's not, there's not like specific scenarios I can call out where I was like, oh yeah, you know, we did, you know, this code change or something. And... I think the thing, the reality is, is that you're always going to make mistakes. And I think the speed in which you recover and then the avoidance of that same mistake in the future is what's most important. And I think learning fast as a founder is absolutely critical because you're not going to know everything. And that's why you need to have a great team. You have to have a great team who can reveal these things to you and they can help you avoid making that mistake again in the future. So, you know, there's, there's always going to be mistakes. Something that I said as a CEO or, you know, some initiative we built or a feature that we built maybe wasn't quite what the customer wanted. And I think it's just a factor of like taking a step back, zooming out and being like, well, what led us to this decision? Really, really reflecting on it and doing a postmortem, doing our best to avoid that again in the future. So that's, that's more of the way I think about it. But you're always going to make mistakes. It's, it's unavoidable. Well, Jack, what does the future look like for the product and for your team? 
I mean, I'd love to know that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, we want to continue to grow. We want to continue to support our customers. I think, you know, when I think about the year, my big focus is really just building super intuitive, super delightful workflows for security practitioners. And I think historically, we've never really had that. We've had to sort of build the flows out of these tools that were never really designed for doing detection and response. So when I think about product-specific things in the future, it's really building around the end-to-end journey of the practitioner, making sure that they're able to quickly, scalably, and practically get through all areas of our product to get to their security outcomes, which are get all of my data in, find my attackers, get alerts and notify my team, and then reveal like the full extent of a breach. That's really going to be the focus of the company for a very long time because those are all very difficult things to do at, at a certain scale. The future is just about educating our, our team and in the market as well with customers, really trying to grow with them. For us, it's like, how do we better move as a business? How do we make smarter decisions? Um, how do we grow? How do we continue to you know, go through that, like, quote unquote, hyper growth journey? and really just have the most impact that we possibly can. I mean, I think there's there's a lot we could do and like everything, you have to really pick and choose your time wisely. So when I th- think about the future, I, I want this to, to continue at the you know same rate we've been growing, which has been pretty sort of like breakneck as they would describe it. And um, that's all I can really hope for as a founder. Let's switch to you, Jack. Who influences the way that you work? Name a person you look up to and why. There's a lot of people in tech that I look up to. And there's actually, funny enough, going back to cooking, there's like a handful of like chefs and people that I've looked up to as well, just who've had really great journeys. And for those who are familiar with like the barbecue scene, I'll call out like Aaron Franklin is one of those. Like he's a guy who started cooking barbecue in his backyard for some friends. And then eventually, you know, started cooking it out of a small like trailer in a gas station and then you know when he opened his restaurant they've been sold out every day since then and that was like i don't know how many years ago like eight or ten years ago probably since he opened his place in austin but like stories like that are really remarkable and it just shows like a incredible journey of someone who had this idea and had this passion and really just like really brought it to to life and there's a lot of people in 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 business that i look up to i look up to for similar reasons so i think a great example is is, uh, bob Iger from disney his journey was like absolutely remarkable, and I would absolutely recommend that anyone reads his book called The uh, Ride of a Lifetime. That was such an amazing book. And then there's a lot of other great entrepreneurs out of Silicon Valley and, and, and beyond, actually, to, to model after. And you know, I think like Reed Hoffman's a great example. Reed Hastings from Netflix, his book was also amazing. And I think the really um, incredible thing is I've actually had the opportunity to meet some of these people through throughout the journey and just hear from them directly. It's been really incredible. So these people who've gone through gone through that before, I think also another one is Brian Chesky from Airbnb uh, and his story as well. And just how he went from being a designer to being a CEO of a multi-billion dollar public company that is continuing to do a lot of incredible things. And I've just had always so much respect for him in his journey, but also in what Airbnb as a company continues to do, especially with social impact regarding things like Ukraine right now, and they're offering free homes for refugees. And, you know, they've always done things like that. And I've always had so much respect for them. Um, So I'm always proud to call myself like an ex-Airbnb employee. And leaders like that, I think, inspire me in, in a lot of different ways. And the beauty with Silicon Valley is there's so much learning that's happened. You know, you have all these mega companies that have just made crazy amounts of impact in the world and 
all these people wrote books and as founders you just need to absorb that and you need to learn about what they did right and what they did wrong and how that can inspire you to go through your own journey. Well, we talked about some mistakes, right? But a little bit different spin. Maybe not a mistake, but if if you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently? Or where would you consider taking a different approach? I think I would put more emphasis on on outcomes. Early on, when I just started the company, I was very uh, I was very focused on like building the cool technical thing, and I had a lot of experience and I knew what worked, but I didn't really know how to build a product to go to market. And I didn't even know what go to market really meant, to be honest, as an engineer. It was just so far removed from my world. You know, I was coming out of doing detection and response for eight years. I didn't know anything about building companies. So I would say putting more of an emphasis on solid product management early on would have made a huge difference. And I think it would have allowed us to go to market a lot smoother. But, you know, with everything, hindsight is twenty twenty. I don't know if there's anything I could have done at that time to really correct it because it just wasn't my background. And also being a solo founder and being a solo first-time founder, there's just a lot of things I didn't know. I didn't know how to build a company. I didn't know how to raise raise venture capital. I didn't know how to hire people really. You know, I had limited experience with that. I was only a manager also for maybe a year prior. So even leading people was new to me. I mean, you know, there, there's there's a hundred different things that, you know, I wasn't great at in the beginning and I've just learned so much through that journey and it's been pretty remarkable. But I think to concisely answer, I would say just more of an emphasis on the journey of the customer and really like writing that down being like, okay, these are the security outcomes that we're solving for. So this is what we're going to build. The thing with our industry is that this, this type of platform takes so much work to build. It's very heavy. It's very hard to create this. So that was actually a huge challenge of ours in the beginning. And I don't think anything could have, I don't think we could have done anything differently, to be honest, to, to make that easier, um, other than just have more upfront capital and time and, and just spend it building. But if I had to pick one thing, I would just pick you know, more emphasis on, on good product management or hiring a, a PM early through the journey. Well, last question, Jack. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? My advice is always have a strong reason why you're doing something and convey that clearly to the world. And I think from there, a lot of things become easier. It becomes easier to rally a team. It becomes easier to raise, to raise additional capital and for people to support your idea. And, you know, it's not an original idea, this answer. It comes from the, the Start With Why book. And Simon Sinek's whole learnings around, you know, just always explaining the reason why you're doing something. And, you know, the leader's job is to convey the why. And then the team's job is to do the how and the what. The leader is not really concerned with the details. It's more of the story and the narrative behind why we're doing it. And his whole thesis is that those companies tend to to be more successful and have a, a, a brighter future. So that would be my advice. Like, never forget why you do it and have a good reason. That's fantastic advice. Well, Jack, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Panther. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me know. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash codestory for just five to ten bucks a month. 
And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.